Good evening. How are you guys doing on this fine Tuesday evening? That was a weak response. But that's okay. Maybe you're not doing all that well. It's okay. That's life sometimes. That's why I'm glad we have God. Anybody glad you have God? Anybody glad you have some hope, a future? Got two people glad you have hope and a future. Amen. That is amazing. Well, look, I am excited about tonight. Uh, I feel like God has really been speaking to me uh, about this message for tonight and leading me through the word, been deep in study. We are, we're, we're looking at something tonight that uh, I think is one of the most powerful stories in scripture, which is hard to say because, I mean, all of scripture is the living, breathing word of God. Anytime God gets involved in somebody's life, it's a powerful story. But as I've been diving into this, I'm like, this is, this is special. This is, this is unique. Uh, and so we're going to go on a little bit of a journey tonight. And, and we're going to get to the story that I was talking about a little bit later. But we're going to go on a journey tonight. So my encouragement would be to buckle up. It's going to be a, a, little bit, a little bit different in the sense that we're navigating uh, a decent amount of content tonight. Uh, because God, God is always telling a big story, even in the small stories. And many times we don't understand the power of what's taking place in a small story because we don't understand what God is doing in the big story. And so even many times our, our version of the gospel in our minds is very compartmentalized. And it has a particular focal point that may not be the whole story. And so I wanted to take us on a journey tonight because I believe the more we understand about the great story that God is telling about his relationship with us, the more we will understand some of the nuances of the things that he asks of us, uh, of some of the things that we struggle with, of some of the commands that he makes, the requirements that he has. So, again, I encourage you to take notes tonight because I think this is one of those messages where when you take notes and then you look back at it, it'll bless you to see how it kind of all connects. Amen? All right, so I want to pray for us and then I want to dive into it. So, Lord, I thank you so much for what you are doing. Lord, the fact that you still speak. God, the fact that you're present here with us. And, Lord, we are here expectant that you are going to teach us something tonight. Lord, you're, you're going to minister to our hearts tonight. Lord, you've already been ministering to our hearts tonight. Lord, we want to minister to you tonight as well, God, as we honor and treasure your word. Lord, as we cherish your truth. Lord, as we invite you to, to do your work inside us, God, and transform us and change our ways of thinking, God. We invite you to even point out the areas of our life that need attention. Lord, we, we invite the gift of your conviction tonight. Lord, the gift of your enlightenment. Lord, even as Carl prayed, God, I, I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart. Lord, that you would shine light on things that we have not seen. God, that you would show us things in a way we've never seen them. And that we would ultimately see you in a, in a new and fresh and glorious way. All for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. 
Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, tonight, I want to do a part two to last week's message. Was anybody here last week? Cool. Last week, we talked about staying the course, about the fact that God is a God of process. He takes us on a journey, and it's a course that we need to stay on to get to the destination that he's called us to. And the destination that God has called us to is eternal life. I don't know how often you think about that, but uh, sometimes that's just something sitting in the back of our minds. It's something that many of us know Jesus talks about. We know God says it, but a lot of times it isn't our focal point or our, our destination that is marked at the end point of our life. But that is what Jesus says that your target destination should be, is eternal life. So to not just live for the day, to not just live for the moment, to not live in a way that is purely temporary, but to live with the future in mind. And God is a God of process, of journey. He takes us from one place to the next place to the next place. God is always moving. He always has a plan. It is the nature of how he operates. We are in the midst of a story that is still unfolding. In the scriptures, God has outlined how things started, how things are going, and how things will end up, and we are still in the middle of it. We have not even seen the end of the story manifest. We can read about the end of it, but we haven't seen it manifest yet. So God has been in in a several thousand year process of telling this story and walking us through a story, because God does not just tell a story, he walks you through a story. Where you are right now is a particular point of your story, the story that he's telling with just your life. Have you noticed that God is telling a story with your life, that he's writing a story with your life? Have you noticed how much we love stories, how powerful stories are? We watch stories. We read stories. We listen to stories. We love stories. And God is a God that tells a story, and a story is simply a journey. A story has to have a beginning. You gotta have some type of background or context. There have to be some events that unfold. There have to be challenges. There has to be uncertainty. Does anybody, I think one of the worst things about uh, a movie or a story is when you are watching or reading and you already know how everything is gonna go. That's, one of the, that's the most boring story. I will turn something off. I'm like, ah. This is the same story has been told a billion times. Yeah, we get it. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is just a, a rewrite of something else. It's too predictable. Who wants predictable? Well, we do in our own lives. Right? We want predictable in our own lives. Nobody says a predictable story is a beautiful story, but a predictable story is a comfortable story when you're living it. And if we could, if we could take ourselves outside of the story of our lives for a moment, just for a second, and just, and just look from the outside in to your story, I think you could look at some of the events 
that have unfolded over the course of your life. And you could say, okay, this may not be a comfortable way of living life, but I can't deny that this is a powerful story. And I can't deny that there, there's some tensions that have to be resolved here. That's what makes a story so engaging, when there are tensions that have to be resolved. You ever been in the middle of watching a movie and you just have to stop watching it? And you're like, ah, I want to see what happens. Anybody? Nobody ever gets busy? (laughs) Never get interrupted. But just saying, you can be in the middle of something and just enthralled and saying, man, I can't wait to see how this pans out. I would say that that's how God feels about your life. Genuinely. That, that we see this. He, he's writing a story. It's undeniable. And there are twists, there are turns. And the Bible, as it currently is, was not always 66 books. It had to unfold. Like thousands of years had to pass. A bunch of different authors had to write in different time periods and One person told their part of the story. The next person told their part of the story. The next person told their part of the story. And now we have the beautiful benefit of being able to look back and see this amazing story that God is telling. That that, that each and every individual contributor was only contributing a small part to a large story. And God is telling a story, and it's a story he wants you to know because you are a part of it. And so I wanted to set that up as we dive into Scripture tonight so that we can value what we're reading, that we are reading not just a story, but we are reading our story. You are reading your story. You are a part of this story because the story that God is telling in Scripture is how it should shape the way you view your current season in life. You are a part of the story that God is telling. So I want us to start um, in Genesis because that is where the story of Scripture begins. And in Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 27, we see, we see the start of mankind. It says, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then in chapter 2, verse 7, it says, The Lord God formed a man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now this is powerful as we read it. But it's even more powerful when you understand how and why it's being written the way that it's being written. Because the culture that God was speaking to, he's speaking to people who lived thousands of years ago in a totally different culture and society where people had a particular uh, common worldview. And he's speaking to people in a language that they can understand. Have you ever tried to speak to somebody and they did not understand the language you spoke? 
Have you ever had somebody speak to you in a language you do not understand? That is a very frustrating thing, and it accomplishes nothing. Nothing gets across. Nothing gets accomplished. And so God, when he speaks to us, he is infinitely wise. He is infinitely powerful, infinitely knowledgeable. And when he speaks to us, he crafts it in a way that we can actually understand. He speaks to us in our language. So this is why Jesus would walk around and tell parables and say the kingdom of God is like this and would use an everyday situation to illustrate a reality that they could not see. And the same thing is happening here because he says that God made mankind in his image and in his likeness. Well, the the words they're used, they don't necessarily hit us in a really powerful way, but what he's actually illustrating there is something very powerful. So in this day and age, idol worship was the norm. It was how people connected with the divine. They would create and form a statue, and the common belief was that when they created a statue of a deity, they would form it in the image the likeness of a deity, and they believed that when they created it, they would pray over it, and they believed the essence of that deity would enter the statue. And then the presence of that statue was then, therefore, the presence of that deity. And so when they interacted with the statue, they interacted with the deity. So God says that in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth, and goes throughout the process of creating the earth. And then he says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. The word there used is uh, this, this Hebrew word, selim, and it means image, likeness, uh, that which is a pattern, model, or example of something. So God is using language that they understand that just like the way you guys make these little statues and believe that, the, that a divine essence enters that statue uh, and then the presence of that statue means the presence of that deity, that's actually what I did with humanity. I, in, instead of carving out wood and stone like you guys do, I took dirt and formed it into a man. And then I breathed my spirit, my essence into this form, and it became a living being where now the creation could interact with the divine through the conduit of the human being. So the human being is a conduit of the deity, Yahweh, God. He expresses himself to the creation through human beings. The only, create, the only creature made in his image and in his likeness. So when you understand what he's saying, it's really, really powerful. We are living, breathing representations of God on the earth. This is why it makes sense that we have so many similarities to him. It's why we can look around and say he must Think. 
He must create from ideas because look at creation. He must have logic. He must have reason because look at the order of the universe and the order of creation and the predictable nature of nature. There's so much that we can understand about God through understanding ourselves. And so this is why even throughout scripture, when prophets would have a vision of God, you often see this concept, he looked like a son of man, which means a human, a son of a human. Like this was, this was just ancient language for a human. Looked like a human, except he like glowed and had, he was flying around on a throne and had fire, come, like all this stuff. He looked kind of like a human, but way more glorious. And it's because humans look like God, just less glorious, but with a glory of our own. Because he created us to reflect his glory. So because we were created as conduits of the presence of God, this means that we were created for a purpose and we were created for authority. Because it says that he then blessed them and told them, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. He even said Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and over the livestock, the birds of the air, all these things. They could exercise authority. Here's the first thing I want us to understand, that you and I, we were created to have authority, but not autonomy. You and I, we were created to have authority but not autonomy. Here's the difference. Autonomy is the right or condition of self-government. So to be autonomous means you are able to govern yourself, rule over yourself. You make your own rules. You determine and define reality, your own life, your own truth. It means you get to self-govern. But authority is this. Authority is the power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. And God has given us not absolute authority. He's given us delegated authority. We do not have the right to just govern ourselves. But we do have a level of authority over what God has given us authority over. But he's the king of kings. The Lord of lords. The Lord over all Creation, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to God. And he delegates authority to his people, but from his throne. We, we don't get above the throne of God. We are seated in Christ, praise God, by the grace of God, but we don't get authority over God. You don't get authority outside of God, and you absolutely do not get autonomy. And this is one of the, one of the challenges uh, that we have and why we will conflict a lot with the society that we live in because the big push throughout society, especially Western society, is to have full autonomy. That is a big push, that you should be able to self-govern. 
But if everyone is self-governing, then what does that do to the collective whole? It's chaos. Because if you and I live by completely different rules, how do we live together? If we all live by completely different rules, how do we accomplish anything together? We can't. We separate. We divide. We live our own lives, and we never accomplish a collective purpose. But God intended for us to actually have a collective purpose. He intended for your story to be a part of a larger story. He expected for your life to be a part of everyone else's lives around you. He expected other people's lives to impact yours and your life to impact other people. This is why he said, let us create mankind so that they may rule. Not so that they may just go out and do whatever. So that they may rule, so that they may carry out the mission that I give them as a collective whole. And so there are parameters and boundaries that we live in because there's a purpose for our lives. So God has parameters and boundaries because we were created with very specific intent. And some of us, we may view that as a negative thing. We don't always love parameters. We don't always love limitations. We don't always love boundaries until we do. Let me explain. If you want to get from one place to another place, you need boundaries if you're ever going to get there. So we're, we're in Atlanta right now. If I say, go to Nashville, you will... Get on 75 North <laughs> on the boundaries of that road, and you will follow the boundaries of that road. And every turn that your GPS tells you to make to get to the intended destination, you have to follow a very particular path to get to a particular destination. And the only way you can follow a very particular path is with boundaries and limitations. Because if there are no limitations, you have nothing to follow. So if the road just stops and it's just wilderness, you're mad. <laughs> How is there nothing paved? How is there nothing marked? How are there no limitations? If it just becomes wide open field, which way do I go to get to my destination? I need some parameters to make sure I get to where I need to go. If I get on 75 South, I'm never getting to Nashville. It doesn't matter how long I drive down that road. It doesn't matter how fast I go. It doesn't matter how much I tell myself I'm going to Nashville. I'm not getting there on 75 South. I might get to Miami. But I won't get to Nashville. I'll, I might get to Miami and just settle there. And what many of us do 
What society tells us to do is go to Miami and call it Nashville. Redefine it. Make your own Nashville. Who can tell you that that's not Nashville? You gonna tell me what Nashville is? This is my truth. See, it sounds wild when I say it in a story like that. It sounds crazy, like nobody would agree. Like if you plan a group trip and two of y'all go north and two of y'all go south, what sense does that make? Y'all are never going to go on this trip together. You guys are never going to meet together. It doesn't make sense in any other context. And here's the issue is that many of us are tempted to buy into this narrative that the world is selling that really has no destination in mind for human life. And so we will listen to the voices of people. We'll even debate with people about a path when we never agreed on the destination. I'm trying to tell you how to get to Nashville. You're trying to tell me how to get to Miami. And we're, we're arguing with each other. You don't even believe in a Nashville. And I'm trying to tell you how to get there. And so where we are going matters so much. And it's the only way that we will value parameters is when we have an intended destination in mind. It's when we have an intended place that we're trying to get to, that is when we will value boundaries. And if we look at the story that God is telling in the Bible, it can be summed up this way. That without clear direction from God, humanity will always wander and end up going toward death and destruction. That is the path we always find. We are in an open field, wandering, and we never get to life by just wandering. Because there is a path that leads to life. It is not something that just falls in your lap. So God, in his kindness and mercy, this is a story we see. God, in his kindness and mercy, repeatedly intervenes to redirect and say that is not the way that leads to life. That is in fact the path that leads to death and destruction. So if you wanna get to life, you have to go this way. You can keep going south, but you're never going to get to life. So you can keep going your own way, you can make your own rules, you can try to redefine and define everything, but you will never get to your intended destination by your own definitions. You have to go on the path that was already marked out because God created the path. He created you, he created the destination, and created the path. And so if you just try to get out here and freestyle it, you will never get to your intended destination. Proverbs 14, 12 says it like this. There is a way that seems right to a man. But its end is the way to death. Isn't that scary? That the way you're going can seem right to you. So so something feeling right or seeming right, seeming like a good thing, is not an indication that it is the path that leads to life. 
it is an indication that that feels good to you. But that does not necessarily mean that it's leading to life. He's saying that it can feel and seem right, but its end is the way to death. And I would say this, that the way that seems right but leads to death is always the comfortable and popular way. What is most comfortable and what is most popular is always the way that seems right and always leads to death. What is most popular, what is most comfortable is never what's best. If you don't agree with me, it's not my idea. It's Jesus's idea. He says in Matthew 7, 13 through 14, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. That means it's easy, comfortable, and it's popular. There are many going down that path. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Comparatively speaking, because if the popular way is one way, then the other way is inevitably a way that few find. It can't be popular and exclusive. It can't be popular and few people are going down it. That contradicts itself. But the way that it's popular and comfortable is the way that seems right to us. And in the end, it leads to destruction. Jesus says this. It's, oh, the way that everybody wants to go is always the easy way. These things complement each other. Whatever is most comfortable is also most popular because everybody wants to do what's comfortable. What's popular is open to much less scrutiny. You're going to get a lot less criticism, scrutiny, pushback, resistance by doing what's popular because everybody agrees with you. So we're always tempted to do that. And then the, the way that it's comfortable is always appealing because it requires no discipline, it requires no sacrifice. And so we are always tempted to go the way that has no scrutiny and no sacrifice. It's more difficult to be the odd person out. It's more difficult to hear the criticism, hear the scrutiny, have people judge you. I remember when I was first, um, when I was first like getting on fire for God and I was out uh, with, with some friends. And, and one of my friends at the time, she was not a believer by any means. And she was like, so you're a Christian now. So like, do you hate gay people? Her idea of me following Jesus means I hate a certain group of people. In her mind, that is what she connected. That's just one example of what many of us are going to have to navigate going the narrow way. Scrutiny, criticism, pushback, resistance. And I shared lovingly. No, I don't hate gay people because I'm following Jesus. In fact, I don't hate anybody because Jesus commands me to love my neighbor, to love. Now, it depends on what you consider love and what you consider hate. Is disagreeing with something hatred? In our society, yeah. 
In reality, no. You can like onions. I can disagree. I don't think they taste good. It doesn't mean I hate you as a person because I disagree with you. So disagreement does not mean a hatred towards a person. Now, unfortunately, a lot of Christians have not gotten that memo. And so I understand why she would feel that way because a lot of Christians have perpetuated this hatred towards people and feel like they are serving God by condemning people and loving people by just bringing them commandments and never bringing them Christ. And so just like what Pastor Johnson preached this past weekend, if you, if you have not been a part of this series that just started on Sunday, I invite you to go back and watch it and to be in uh, for this series. We're in the book of Matthew as a church for the, uh, almost the whole year, and we're in a series called Love Over Lust. And one of the things that he was talking about um, was, was this concept right here, that God has given us truth, um, and the way that we communicate it has to be the way that God communicates it. And we're not just called to condemn people and clap when their sin is preached against, but we're actually supposed to love people and come alongside people and bring people Christ and believe that God can transform a human life. That is the essence of believing the gospel. And so it's not a hatred of people. It's a belief that God can change your life, just like he changes mine. Amen. Amen. So as I was saying, um, (laughs) where was I? So the way that seems right and leads to death is the comfortable and popular way. So what is comfortable is most popular. What is most popular is always most comfortable. And we are tempted to live our lives in a way that is comfortable and popular, but that is never the way that, that God has intended for us to live. And Jesus says the way we are supposed to go in life is actually uncomfortable and unpopular. The way we are supposed to go in life is uncomfortable and unpopular. Some of us, we need to let that sink in because I don't think we always understand that that's what we're signing up for. Many of us are signing up for, for Jesus to make our life better. And he does make your life better. But Better does not always mean easier or more comfortable. It means better. For him, sometimes better actually means more challenge. If you have a good workout, does that mean it was easy? No. A good workout means, wow, that was challenging and I made it through it, and it made me better. That was a good workout. Some of us need to grasp that concept in life, that God is not always inviting us to a picnic. It's not that he doesn't invite us to a picnic. There are picnic times, picnic seasons. But there are also pressure times and pressure seasons. There's resistance. There are challenges. There are obstacles. And if we never go through those things, we never grow. And so a better life also includes overcoming, also includes victory. It includes overcoming things that you didn't know that you could overcome. 
you got to get stronger to live a better life. You get stronger by going through challenges. It's not the way that we would set things up for ourselves. So thank God we're not God. And so that brings us to the focal text for tonight that I wanted us to hone in on. It's in Exodus. Um, and, and it actually spans several chapters. We're going to kind of bounce from the beginning uh, through today. But um, in Exodus chapter 20, I want to set up the story first, what's happening here. Um, I already told you that in, in their society, idol worship was just, it was the absolute norm for society. It was how people interacted with the spiritual realm. It was, it was normal. There was no weirdness excuse me, about it. Nobody felt like people were weird for worshiping idols. This was normal. It was common. It was like nowadays, if you say you're spiritual, nobody will disagree with you. Just say you're spiritual. Oh, yeah, me too. (laughs) It's the norm. It's not normal for us to interact with statues But it is normal for most of us to believe that there is a spiritual realm that we interact with in some way, shape, or form. And so uh, if you are a universalist, then you just believe, man, we, and which is the way that society is trying to go, you believe, man, it all kind of works, right? Christianity, Judaism, Islam, New Age, Hindu, Buddhism, like it's all interaction with the spiritual realm. We're all kind of generally going the same direction. That's kind of like what this is right here. This is just a norm. Nobody feels like you're like you are just an oddball out if you say that you are spiritual. Here, it's the same thing. And so uh, God, he brings the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt If you don't know that part of the story, you're going to have to go back and read it. But God makes a covenant with a man named Abraham. His descendants end up in slavery for 400 years. God decides to rescue them with the purpose of bringing them into relationship with him and continuing the story that he has written. And he saves them from Egypt with all types of power and wonder and might. He sends plagues. On, on Egypt, and there's this showdown with Pharaoh and all the magicians and the sorcerers in Egypt. And much of what God is communicating, even through the different plagues, is his supremacy and sovereignty and the fact that he is God. And this was more revolutionary than I think we realize because there were no monotheistic religions at this time. Nobody believed that there was just one God who did everything. It was common belief that there were just many gods and each god was kind of a specialist in each field. And so God sent plagues to show his supremacy over all these different areas. He sends frogs and shows his supremacy over fertility. He he sends darkness and shows his supremacy over the sun. There's not a sun god and a frog god and, and all these different things. He's showing his supremacy as a sign not just to Egypt, but also a sign to the Israelites because they are going to have to come into a new and fresh understanding that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob of their ancestors is in fact the one true God. And as, as 
countercultural as the idea is, he is revealing himself and showing himself to them that I really am the one true God. And the story that I am writing is a story that I am writing, and I am the one who started this whole thing in Genesis. I am the one who's carrying it on now. I am the one true God. And so he rescues them out of Egypt. He brings them into a wilderness called Sinai, and they end up at this mountain where it's the first time that, that, well, it's not the first time, but it's one of the most grand ways that God reveals himself to them and is going to establish a relationship with them, establish the, the parameters of their relationship in what is called a covenant. And so he's about to outline how they're going to interact with him, how they're supposed to interact with each other. Now that he's rescued them, he's bringing them into freedom, but there are parameters, there are boundaries because they are the first sample group of people who are supposed to come back to the original intent. They're supposed to be a microcosm, a small sample group of what all of humanity is supposed to be doing, properly carrying out the image of God, properly stewarding the image of God, properly reflecting God's glory in the earth. And it is expressed in how they interact with him and how they interact with each other. And so he shows up in a very grand and terrifying fashion. He descends on the mountain with thunder and fire and a trumpet blast that wakes them up to let them know it's time to go to the mountain and meet him, but do not come too close to the mountain. If they touched the mountain, they had to be put to death. That meant humans, animals, no one could touch the mountain or they were going to have to be put to death just because God was on the mountain. And imagine you are sleeping in your tent peacefully and you all of a sudden hear a trumpet blast from heaven that wakes up the entire nation and then you have to go to this mountain that if you get too close to, you actually are going to die. This is a terrifying experience. Like as I'm reading this, I'm like, this is crazy. I can't imagine how this felt. And then you see the, the, the dense, thick cloud. You see fire. There's thunder, there's lightning. And then it says that the trumpet blast was increasing in volume. <sighs> what? It's just getting louder like this wasn't already scary. Now it's increasing in volume. And then from there, Moses goes up the mountain. Long story short, God tells him to go back down. I want to speak to everybody. So they all hear the voice of God. And this is what God says, Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 4. I am the Lord, your God. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. It's the first thing that he addresses in this grand demonstration. And then he gives, that's the first of the Ten Commandments. He then gives the Ten Commandments. But why is he saying this? It's because idol worship was so 
popular. And this was one of the important aspects that we need to understand about idol worship is the philosophy was uh, it was the norm to have a national God, a family God, and a personal God. And so it would have been the norm for them to, to receive Yahweh as their national God. He's the one who brought us as a nation out of Israel. But the norm would then be to have other gods personally and for their family. And what these gods really were, it wasn't just like stuff that they just wanted to bow down to and, give and sing songs to. To worship a god in these days was not about music. It was not about songs. It was not about dance. It was about giving that deity what it asked for so that you could get what you needed from that deity. Remember, they believed that all these deities were specialists in different areas. And so if you needed to make sure you're surviving off of your land, off of your crops, if there's no rain, if the crops don't come in abundance, your family business is down, your food is down, like the whole nation can struggle as a result of that. And so they depended heavily on these deities that they believed provided these things. And so it would be easy to receive Yahweh as their national God. Okay, he, yeah, he's the big God who like delivers us from big trouble. But when I need this, I'm going to this. Oh, like when I need comfort, I'm not going to big, scary thunder man. <laughs> I'm going to what I'm used to going to for comfort. When I need peace... I'm not going to Yahweh. I'm going to what's normal to go to for peace. When I need relief from anxiety and stress, I'm going to go to what's normal to go to. Like, yeah, like I'm a, I'm a follower. Yeah, like I'm a believer. And like that, yeah, it's a God. Like most of America still says that they're Christians. Like yeah, we believe in God. We believe in Jesus. We just don't depend on him. We don't follow him. We don't obey everything he says. We don't live like him, walk like him. But yeah, he's like our national God. And this is what God is trying to immediately dismantle is this mindset that they can have different gods. So he says, you shall have no other gods. It is just me, which was revolutionary because in their minds, it's like, well, yeah, you're a God, but you can't be the only God. Come on. Like, you can't be what I need for everything. Like, when I need healing, I, like, there's got to be some other options. When I need relief, there's got to be some other options. There's got to be another way to go. Something popular and comfortable, like what everybody else is doing. All the other nations... They get to just take the easy way. They get a God they can see. We have this invisible God that we have to worship in this very particular way. I want the easy one, right? Everybody else gets to have this God. Why can't I? Everybody else gets to conduct themselves because these gods don't ask anything of, these, of us. We give them a little food, we give them a little sacrifice, and then they bless us. Can't we operate like that with you? 
Can we just give you what you're asking for here and there, and then you give us everything that we want, and you, and you make no demands on our ethical lives? Because the rest of the, t- the Ten Commandments, they're, they're all very specific ways that they are supposed to live. This is also new. Why are you making all these demands? We have to, like, live different? This is also terrifying. The trumpet's blasting. You're speaking. We can't have any other gods. And I can't steal. I stole yesterday. (laughs) Don't covet my neighbor's wife. What? Honor my mother and father so that I'll have a long life. You'll kill me? What is happening? Like, at first glance, this whole experience is terrifying. But he addressed it. Because it was so important. Now, interesting thing is, this, this thing was so terrifying. I'm not putting up all the scriptures because we'd be here all night. But it says, when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us anymore. We will die if he keeps talking. Like, that's how they felt. Like, if this keeps happening, I'm going to die. This is absolutely terrifying. And Moses said to the people, don't fear. God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you so that you won't sin. So then, says the Lord said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you've seen for yourselves that I've talked with you from heaven. This is verse 22 through 23. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold, because in their minds, it would just be so easy to add to him. It's like, yes, you are Yahweh, and we're also going to add this one. We really like this other God, too. We're going to add this in here. And we actually end up seeing them do that uh, throughout the course of their history. It's what they always veered towards, but he keeps repeating this because he wants them to know this. This is why a few chapters down, he says, pay attention to all that I've said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. I want you to understand that there will be no other gods. I'm the only one. I'm the only one to depend on. And they needed to understand this, but they couldn't fully understand it up front because God was going to have to reveal himself over time. And so, The the mistake that many people make and you and I will easily make is we'll hear God's requirements and commands and because we don't fully understand him, we'll immediately want to back out. The less we know him, the less we understand what he requires. But then as he reveals himself over time, we see the beauty of actually what he's building, the beauty of what he actually requires. This is why over time they had to see, that oh, this is the Lord, our victory. Like, we don't need another God for victory. Oh, he's the Lord, our healer. We don't need another God to heal. Oh, he's the Lord, our banner. We don't need another God to, to oversee us. He's the Lord who provides. We don't need another provider. He is, he is the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, our righteousness, the Lord, our presence, the Lord, our peace. He's everything that we need. The Lord who cleanses us. But this is revealed over time. And it's the same way in your life and in my life. If we don't give God time to reveal himself through our life circumstances, then we will never understand why he wants us to only depend on him. 
And so if we insist on including our idols, if we insist on including these other things that we depend on in our relationship with God, we will never understand who he really is and we will continually dishonor him because it's dishonoring to God. Like, he's God. He can't be this for you as well. And sometimes it's extremely difficult to really embrace. I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying it's true. It's hard to really view God as your provider. Like, like God. I, I know. But, but, you sure you don't want a little idol? You don't want me to like get a little extra in the mix, a little backup plan, a little plan B, plan C? It's not easy, but if we stay the course, We will see God come through. And here's the thing. God can tell you that he's your provider, but even your definition of that has to be shaped by God. Because when he says it, you hear it a particular way, but he actually has to teach you what it means. So being your provider doesn't mean you don't do anything or you don't put your hands to anything or you sit at home with with nothing going on and just God's going to send something and I don't need to work for anything. That's not how it works, but it also doesn't mean you take your own life into your own hands and you determine all your own decisions, your own career path, your own trajectory. You, you create your own schedule that, depend, that requires you to run everything and control everything, and you orient your life around providing for yourself, and God has to teach you what it's like to walk that narrow road with him. Because it's not just going to be immediately plain to you. And if you don't allow him to reveal it to you, you'll never get it. You'll never understand it. This is why it's so important that we stay the course. Idol worship was popular. It was comfortable. It was convenient. And it was satisfying. It was popular. Everybody was doing it. That's always easier comfortable. It didn't require much. Like these, these idols weren't demanding anything. It was convenient. It didn't require all this extra stuff that God wanted them to do to engage with him. They could just kind of live their lives the way that they wanted to live. They, they, they didn't have to change anything about their character or their nature. Like an idol wasn't worried about whether they lied today or not. But God is satisfying. It was just immediate gratification. It's like, wow, I, I can just I can see this idol, like it's in front of me, uh, and I can just convince myself that this is enough. And there's a satisfaction that comes with that, rather than the uncertainty that comes with following a God who is invisible. It's just real. I'm not going to tell you that it's not challenging to follow a God that is invisible and requires waiting and challenges and faith and prayer and spiritual warfare. 
What's easier is to just take what's right in front of you. That's what's easier. Follow your own desires. Whatever comes up, follow it. That's easier. But to actually exercise discipline and depend on him for something. There are things that God requires us to do that we have no like blueprint for in our own mind to say, oh, I can actually do that. I can actually abstain from sex. Like how? And so because we don't have a blueprint, we'll say, well, there's no way I can get there. And God is saying, well, if you just take the step that I'm telling you to take, I'm going to tell you the next step to take and the next step to take. And yeah, it's going to look a little different than what you expected it to look like. And it may require more of you than what you expected, but it's also going to include my intervention, my power, my comfort, my enablement. But it requires you to follow God. And so God is not just giving us commandments that we just got to figure out and create a blueprint for. He invites us to walk with him and to stay the course. For some of us, we're hung up on one step. And we don't want to keep going. And God is inviting you, take the next step. Take the next step. You can't stay here. You can't just stay here. You have to take the next step. Stay the course. This is my way. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way. I am the parameters. I'm the direction. I'm the boundaries. I'm the highway that's going to get you to the destination that you want to get to. But you have to stay the course. I know that you didn't expect this particular roadblock. I know you didn't expect to get in an accident, but I can repair the car. I know you didn't expect to run out of gas, but I can send you some fuel. I know you didn't expect the challenges that you're facing, but just stay the course. If you will just keep going, if you will just stay the course, I will get you to where I want to take you. Don't settle. Don't compromise. Don't build an altar and take an exit. Stay the course. <laughs> stay the course. And so the people, they agreed to obey. And then... A little while later, it was taking longer than they thought it would take. So Moses goes up the mountain, and God is not in a rush. Like, they say you, first of all, they say you go talk to God. We can't take it. We feel like we're going to die if he keeps talking. You go talk to him. We'll stay back. Their idea, Moses who I have a new level of respect for because, my goodness, to be the one to go up this mountain with all this happening is wild. But Moses goes up the mountain, meets with God, but God is not in a hurry. God lets him just sit there in all this glory for six days before he even says anything. Like, spend six days just here. And on the seventh, I'm going to talk to you. And then he talks to him. And what God is giving him is the law. 
the commandments. He's establishing the priesthood. He's establishing the design of the tabernacle. He's, call, he's giving people callings. He said, make sure that Bezalel is the one to actually oversee the creation of all the things that I just gave you the designs for, for the tabernacle, because I put the spirit of God in him and given him the ability to come up with artistic designs. And I've given him partners to help him uh, to actually build this stuff because he was giving them intricate stuff. He's like, make a veil and make sure that you sew a cherubim into it. I don't know what a cherubim looks like. I don't know how to sew a cherubim. Like, if I'm Moses, I'm like, okay, this is very intricate. Like, who's going to do this? The Ark of the Covenant, overlay it with gold. Put these poles through it. Make sure there's cherubim and the mercy seat. Who's an ark? Like, who does it? These are slaves. Who does this? Do we have some gifted designer in here? And God is like, yeah, actually, I'm getting to that. So I'm giving the callings and all this stuff. It's glorious. And what God is actually establishing is something that is so much bigger than that moment. It's so much bigger than just them. I mean, he's establishing a foundation of something that Jesus is going to fulfill thousands of years later. Like he's telling them how to make the veil for the tabernacle which then becomes the veil in the temple, which then becomes the veil in the next temple. And then when Jesus is on the cross and when he actually dies, the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom. And God is establishing the fact that there will even be a veil to, so that you and I could understand the story that he was telling. He's establishing the sacrificial system and all this stuff. He's orchestrating so much, but it was taking a while. It's taking a while. It's a little bit of a delay. (laughs) Moses was up there for 40 days. And it says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, get up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. He went up into that craziness. And we don't know what happened to him. There's no way he's alive up there. There's no way. He must have just died like we thought we were going to die. And so we need, we need something to comfort us in this moment. We need something that we can put our eyes on, something that's right in front of us. We haven't heard God speak in a while, even though we're the ones who said that we can't handle him speaking. And so he just decided to speak to Moses, and he's writing the commandments in his own God-given handwriting on the tablets to give to Moses. I mean, but it's taking a while. And so, Aaron, make us something that we can see with our eyes, that we can worship And so Aaron tells them, all right, take off all your gold jewelry, all the gold that you guys got, because you came out of Egypt with a bunch of gold that God blessed you with. So says that he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Everything's back to normal. We got gods again, idols again. Doesn't it feel so much better to not do this uncomfortable thing with the trumpet blast? Isn't it so much more comfortable to do what we're used to and what comes natural to us and what's normal to us and what everybody else does? 
And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. We are going to have a feast to Yahweh in front of this calf. Because we like him worshiping him better this way. And they rose up early the next day. They got up early. And offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They felt like it's all good. We're going to get up early. We're going to go to church. We're going to bring an offering. We're going to worship. We're going to sing. We're going to dance in front of the idol that we created. And we're just going to act like this is no big deal. Yeah, I know that he said from the trumpet blast and all that stuff, don't have any other gods and all that stuff, but it can't be that serious. Like, I can still be a Christian and, and do this. Like, surely it is oppression. Surely the, it, the, the words must have been twisted. That Surely somebody twisted the words, and when he said the words, they must have been refracted off of some type of object, and we heard them differently. There's no way he said you shall have no other gods. Did you hear him say that? No. I think he said, you shall have other gods with me of silver and gold. I feel like he said that. You feel like he said that? I feel like he said that too, because there's no way that a loving God would say, don't do what makes you comfortable. There's no way that a loving God would tell me to not engage in this particular practice. There is no way. So it must have been something else. And so I just believe that God is receiving my heartfelt early morning sacrificial worship in front of this golden calf that he absolutely told me not to make as the first rule. But they felt like it was fine. It says, and the Lord said to Moses, go down, for your people who you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. So they felt like God was receiving this worship, but God is saying that they've corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And before we go tonight, here's what I want us to understand that just because Aaron built an offer, built an altar to Yahweh in front of this golden calf did not make it okay. Like you cannot just have your own way of doing life and build an altar to God in front of it. That is not Christianity. That is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is Whoever wants to keep his life will lose it in the end. And whoever wants to gain life must lose his life. If you will not deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being my disciple. This is the way of Jesus. Because what's crazy to me is the same God who came with thunder and lightning and fire and fear and the most terrifying display of power and sovereignty put on human flesh and walked around with gentleness and meekness and kindness and love and healed the sick. And now I have a new respect for the people who didn't recognize him because surely you're not that God. There's no way you're that God. There's no way, like, this guy walking around, being nice to people, 
teaching everybody, healing the sick, being patient with everybody, not imposing himself on everybody, the one walking around serving people, there's no way this is the, the human embodiment of Yahweh. But that's why we got to stay the course, because you don't understand God until he reveals himself to you. Because that was the only aspect of God they understood. There's another aspect of God. There's a greater revelation of God. They experience an aspect of who he is. He is that God. He is the Mount Sinai frightening God. And that is why I believe that there is no enemy that can come against me when my God is for me. That is why I know the devil has no power over me and no authority over me. That is why I believe when he said he triumphed over every devil on the cross and he said that he disarmed the powers and authorities because he's that God. He's the trumpet blast God. He's the open the heavens God. He's the when he speaks your body trembles God. He's that type of God. And that's the God who is with me. That is the God who gets down in my pit with me. That is the God who will heal my body, who will heal my mind, who will restore me, change me, transform me, forgive me, have mercy on me, have grace towards me. That's why I'll lay my life down. That's why I don't need a golden calf. Am I tempted? Oh, yeah. We all are every single day to do what's comfortable, to do what's popular, to do what's easier. But he's worthy of much more, and he'll never approve of freestyle worship. That's ultimately what they were doing. Freestyle is just a term used to refer to when you're making stuff up on the spot, when you've taken autonomy and, and you just make something up on the spot, that's freestyle. That's what they were doing. We're going to make up this way to worship God. And that's not how it works. He has never changed his expectation of us, but he has empowered us. Here's where I want to close. Ezekiel chapter 36, chapters 24 through 27. This is after they've strayed and strayed and strayed. This is so many years later. This is after they have broken his commands, broken his covenant, served other gods, worshiped other gods, made idol after idol, done what's popular, done what's comfortable, done what's convenient. Like no matter how much he's revealed himself to them, they still do whatever they want to do. They still won't bow down to him. They still won't actually give him lordship over their lives in a personal way. They still might just have him as the national God, but as their personal God, they're going to worship Dagon and Molech and Baal, and they're going to do what's popular and what's comfortable. And through the prophet Ezekiel, after 35 chapters of just going in on all the stuff that they're doing, he says this. He's, he, he, he gives this outline of the hope that he still has. He gives them a picture of, of, an, of another scene in the story, a later scene in the story. If you could just fast forward this a little bit, you would see what I'm, what I'm actually going to do for you. He says this. I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all of your idols. 
I will, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What he's saying is, man, if you could just see the story that I'm really writing, the story that I'm really telling, is not a story of your failures. It's a story of my success. The story that God is writing for you and I is not a story of our own failures. God does not see your failures as the focal point of your story. They create the tension in the story. The, well, how is this person going to overcome this? How is this person going to actually have a positive outcome in this? And God is saying, just wait. You have no idea the plot twist that I'm bringing. How I am going to intervene and become the star of this story. Because I am actually going to transform and change this person from the inside out. And that is what he desires for you and I. That he has absolutely not changed his standard. We shall have no other gods before him. We shall have no other gods in our life. Nothing else we put our heart towards. Nothing else we depend on. Nothing else we trust in but God. But here's the beautiful thing. He says, you can't even do that on your own. You can want to do that, but you can't do that on your own. I am going to intervene. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new spirit. You're going to be born again, and you're going to have your mind renewed. You're going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is all scripture. Jesus says, in order to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. You get a new spirit. Your spirit is born again, brand new spirit. Your mind is transformed and renewed. And then he says, I will put my capital S spirit in you. That means you also receive the deposit of the Holy Spirit in you. And the Bible tells us that it is the spirit of God that is working in you to desire the things of God and to obey the things of God. And he foreshadowed it in Ezekiel and he's doing it in your life and in my life right now as we follow Jesus. And so I just want us to stand to our feet. I don't know where this message hit for you, but I would say that there are probably some areas of your life where you're finding it challenging to depend on God, where you have found it challenging to depend on God. It's my prayer that the Holy Spirit would have brought those things to your attention to, so that you could see what he wants to tend to in your life. There's this beautiful picture, even in, the, even in the end of this story, God says to Moses, yeah, I'm going to wipe these people out, and I'm going to start over, and I'm going to make a nation through you. And Moses says, look, please, spare them. Remember your covenant. Remember your promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that you would create a nation through them. Don't, like, don't let all these other foreign nations look at us and say, oh, he brought them out of Egypt just to kill them. And it says that at Moses' intercession, Moses' prayer for them, God relented and did not destroy them. And this is just a picture of what Jesus 
has done for you and I with the Father. No matter how much we've messed up, no matter how many idols we've built, no matter how many other things we've depended on, no matter how many cycles of sin, no matter how many ways we've slandered God, no matter how many ways we have dishonored, disrespected, and disobeyed him, Jesus lives to make intercession for you and I to say, give me a little bit more time. He illustrated in a parable saying that it's like a vineyard, that, that, there's, a, that there's a tree growing that won't bear any fruit. And the owner of the vineyard says, cut it down. It, why should I let it take up any space? And there's a manager of the vineyard that says, give me a little bit more time to tend to it. There's some things that I just need to work on to make it fruitful. And he's saying that that is the same way that Jesus intervenes for you and I to say, I'm just still working on you. I know that you have some challenges. I know that there are some things that you're going through. I'm just still working on you. Just stay the course. Like, just take the next step. Like, just keep going. You don't know what the end of the story is going to look like. I know things look very uncertain right now, but that's actually how I operate. That's actually what, what sets the scene for faith. And so if you will just trust me and stay the course, you will see me become the star of this story. You will see me actually be all the things that I said that I am. You will see me be your deliverer when it's time to get delivered. You will see me be your healer when it's time to get healed. You will see me be your restorer, your redeemer, your righteousness, your cleanser, your presence, your peace. You will see me become all these things as you need me in these areas. That's who he is, and that's the gift that he offers to you and I. So I want to pray for us tonight, if you'll join me in prayer. Lord, you're present here with us, God. You've already been speaking to us in so many ways. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight, God, that they would hear your voice clearly. Lord, I pray that you would help them to see the areas of their lives that you are beckoning for them to invite you into. You still said you stand at the door and knock, and if anyone will open, you will come in, God, and you are inviting them to stay the course. Lord, I pray that they would see the beauty in your invitation, God, that they would understand that you did not come to the world to condemn the world. You did not just come to criticize us for our sin. You came to save us from our sin, to restore us, to redeem us, to wash us clean, to make us into a person that we never realized we could become. Lord, you came to restore us to the original intent that we could walk around and be accurate reflections of God, true image bearers of the God of heaven and earth. And we could walk like you and talk like you and think like you and love like you and serve like you. God, I pray that you would help us to see the beauty that you're calling us to. And for every person in here who has, who has not taken the first step of relationship with you, Lord, the first step of saying, I'm going to lay my life down and I'm going to receive the life that you're offering me. God, I pray that you would stir in their hearts right now to make a firm commitment to you. And if that's you, if you're wanting to make a decision to follow Jesus today, I want to invite you into that by starting by just lifting your hand so that we can pray with you as just as a sign of surrender, as a sign of commitment, as a sign to say, hey, today's the day. Today's the day. Today's the day. You can lift your hand up high. You don't have to lift it down low. And this is not a sign for anybody else. This is a sign between you and between God to say, it's me. Lord, here I am. I'm making this decision today. I'm inviting you in. I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe that you truly are the God of heaven and earth. I believe that you truly are 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I believe that you have power and authority. And I want you to save me and to bring me into the life that you've always wanted for me. His hands up all over the building and God is rejoicing. Can I tell you that? That God is rejoicing at his children coming home. You are his child. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you so much. You are his child. You are his child. He will never stop coming after you. He will never stop loving you. He will never stop chasing you down. He will never stop drawing on your heart. He loves you. So if that's you with your hand up right now, I want you to pray this prayer with me and come into agreement with this prayer. It's not just the words of the prayer. It's the belief in the prayer. It's the agreement in the prayer. And it's the laying down of your life and the receiving of his life. Say, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are the son of God. I believe that you came to earth, that you put on human flesh, that you lived a sinless life, that you brought grace and truth, that you went to a cross and died for me to pay the price for my sins. I believe that you died and then you rose again. You resurrected. You're alive right now. You're seated at the right hand of the Father and you are inviting me into relationship with you. And so I turn from my old life. I turn from every idol. I turn from everything that I have created to stand in the place of you. And I will depend on you in every area of my life. I invite you to fill me with your spirit, to make me new, give me a new spirit, a new heart, new desires, and help me to follow you and obey everything that you've called me to obey. I repent for all of my sins and I turn completely to you. You're the Lord of my life now and I will follow you forever in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray for each and every person who's in here, Lord, who just wants to take another step with you. That just needs to take another step with you, God. I pray that we will be filled with faith tonight, courage tonight. Lord, I pray that we would find deliverance tonight, healing tonight, God. I pray that we would find who you really are. I pray that you would reveal yourself in a fresh way to us, God. Lord, I pray for strength over my brothers and sisters. God, I pray that we would truly live the lives that you are calling us to live. God, that we would be a city on a hill that shines, God, for the glory of God. I pray that we would be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, that the way we live our lives would be a true reflection of your glory. And we pray that you would just receive our worship, enjoy our worship, and help us to enjoy you and engage with you, God. In Jesus' name. Now look, there's a lot of people who made a lot of decisions tonight. There's a lot of people who decided to follow Jesus tonight, and that is huge. That is huge. And there are a lot of people who, who decided to keep following Jesus tonight. And here's what I want to invite you to do before we go. We're just going to go back into a time of worship. And I invite you, if you want to engage with God 
in a different way than you ever have before. I just invite you to take a step that maybe you haven't taken before. Maybe you've never come down to the front. Maybe you've never really lifted your hands. Maybe you've never really engaged with the heart behind a song. Maybe you've never really engaged with God through worship, but there is something powerful that I believe he wants to do. And there are many of us that I believe he wants to seal a work that he started in us tonight and that you are going to experience him in a fresh way, not just when you come to a mental agreement with what was spoken tonight, but when you act on it by actually giving him the worship and the honor that he deserves. He says that he inhabits the praises of his people. And so I believe that there are some of us who just need to take that step. Whether you just decided to follow Jesus or you're deciding to keep going, I invite you to come down here and I invite you to fill this altar, to fill this place with worship and praise. I pray that this would be an embassy of heaven, a sanctuary of God, where God is receiving his true and proper honor and worship and praise. Amen. Let's worship.